This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Afropolitans, South Africa and the world at large are still in the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've been on lockdown for over 100 days now, so a lot of us may start wondering, will we ever actually live beyond this particular pandemic? A lot of experts have told us that perhaps the way we should start thinking about it is how do we live with the pandemic on the basis that it will be with us for a very long time until at least a vaccine is found and of course that vaccine reaches us in different parts of the world. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been having a lot of conversations, talking with various industry leaders and experts on really what are the type of things we should be thinking about in a podcast titled Beyond Corona, South Africa and the World After the Pandemic. This podcast is a partnership between KFM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Today's topic touches on a very delicate issue of social cohesion. As we all know, the history of South Africa is unique. No other country in the world has the type of social dynamics that South Africa has. And of course, the effects of them are still being felt today. The effects of them are intergenerational. So whenever we talk about the South African story, we need to be cognizant of how unique it is. And I think the concept of social cohesion is perhaps even more elusive in a country that is known as the illustration of the greatest inequalities ever known to humanity. So over the next 60 minutes or so, I'll be talking to the South African Council of Churches, the Human Sciences Research Council, and the Ecumenical Foundation of South Africa to really ask the question of, now that this great research called the coronavirus pandemic is here, how do we then leverage from what it's doing to us and say, well, this social cohesion that we've been pursuing since 1994 perhaps hasn't delivered the outcomes that we want. Let us accelerate it, and this is how we're going to do it. Do join us and listen in to the insights from my three guests. And that is Bishop Malus Mpumlana from the SA Council of Churches. I also have Professor Charlene Swartz from the Human Sciences Research Council and Dr. Marlene Mahokoto, who's a senior project manager at EFSA, which is the Ecumenical Foundation of South Africa. Good morning to all you three, but I'd like to start firstly with you, Bishop. I mean, when we start talking social cohesion, perhaps the concept is very important in a country like South Africa, where we could say we have so many societies, some even say parallel societies. You've got the world of those with means and then the world with everyone else who's really trying to maintain a foothold on the economy and even livelihoods. So with a society that has so many um, you know, fracture points, so many inflection points, what does the concept of social cohesion really mean in the context of the South Africa that we know? Thank you for asking. You know, um, the South African Council of Churches has had a, a moment of reflection on this, what this means. We have come to the conclusion that talk of cohesion is almost a political process. You talk about social cohesion. In fact, it is a lot in the in the in the parlance on the language of the of, of our political parties and government. And that uh, we think there's something that should precede that. And we're not getting enough traction for it. And that is the concept of reconciliation. And when we talk about reconciliation, it begins with reconciling with oneself. We're a wounded society uh, where it, the question of who I am in the South African landscape uh, remains uh, very shaky for a number of types of people. If you are, for example, a woman in South African society, 
you 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 live with a, a sense of threat all your life, and therefore uh, you're not reconciled with your South Africanness, your society, and your community. If you're a poor person living in a a precarious a shack. Uh, your sense of reconciliation with yourself and your environment, your South Africanness, uh, remains um, uh, very, very unsure. So reconciliation is not only about reconciliation between various ethnic groups and various race groups, uh, but it's also about reconciling, reconciliation, being, being comfortable with oneself. Our Constitution's preamble requires, but actually instructs that we should work at dealing with the hurts of the past and reach a reconciled society. Now, that also means you need a a reconciled economic dispensation. We have an economy that does not reconcile at all. You cannot reconcile it with with historically engineered poverty. And that's nothing that really makes a difference. It is not good enough to have social grounds for poverty although it is a charitable thing to do. What is needed is building the capacity for agency so that when you're talking about social cohesion, if for a moment we talk about social cohesion between black and white, that social cohesion is not going to happen if there's no uh, cohesive economic dispensation that that takes into account the black impoverishment and the white enrichment over time. Uh, And that has been inherited. And so... These are some of the things that need a little bit more. Now, you can go beyond that and say there has been an issue of uh, social cohesion with foreign nationals, particularly Africans. And, you know, if you look at the South African economy and how it has been developed, the development of Johannesburg has meant the underdevelopment of Maseru because... For generations, 60% of Minnesota's able-bodied men have been working on the developing the South African economy and not in the Minnesota In the late 1890s, there were more than 100,000 workers in this country, in the mines. That was before they did the Land, land Act that forced a lot of Africans to leave the land and go, in, and go into the mines. But in, before then, they had Mozambicans, they had Malawians, they had Basutu in the mines. And, 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 and that's why you've always had Malawians in South Africa. There's even a song uh, that we grew up singing in the Eastern Cape that says, Nali Nyasali Puhileli Tilonali Mumtosa. Here is a, 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 a Malawian who is a demand that is, 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 is no longer a Malawian, he's Tosa. That's because they have been here forever. But today, they are Makwere Gwere. And suddenly, after developing our economy, we, uh, we, 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 and we, we belong to what is called a, 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 a regional economic block called SADC. And there's nothing economic about it. Everything is just political. And so we, we need to look at how do you reconcile, what will it take to make all of us belong to a common identity? And that takes us to two things that I'd like to talk about. The first one is that we need beginning with the region, that if, if, the, if we look at the regional resource base, the, 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 the gas fields of Mozambique that are huge, if we took those to belong to the region rather than to Mozambique, and therefore we did a protocol that allows for that, those gas fields would not be taken by the Russians, they would, be take, they would belong to the region. 
uh, the, the oil fields of Angola. Between Zimbabwe and South Africa, we have more than 90% of the world's platinum minerals. Uh, we're not even looking at the broad resource base that we have together and make sure that this resource base is developed in a way that benefits all our citizens. And therefore, the issue of uh, foreign workers from neighboring countries does not become an issue because we benefit from each other. We're able to send some of our students to study petrochemicals in Angola and build that capacity and do this across the region in the various ways that we can then make sure that we can an economic block that makes a difference. That in itself would build a measure of social cohesion that that would be admirable. Then, of course, nationally, we don't have a common sense of who we are as South Africans. We're just a package of individual groups of people and that are always at the ready at odds with one another. There isn't a South African identity that we can really all look. We're not even cultivating it. We're not building the schools. We're not building in our churches or anywhere. Uh, I often hear people say that what Charlene has done is un-South African. Sorry, un-ANC, or what Malou has done is un-ANC. I want to hear it said what she has done is un-South African because we've all identified what is appropriate as South Africans. When I grew up, there were things you couldn't do. You don't do this. It's just understood that in this community, one, two, three things you just can never do. What are those things about South Africa? Can we say, for example, that uh, if you are in corruption, you are being un-South African. If you are a racist, you are being un-South African, and so on and so on. How can we identify those things so that our social cohesion is based on an effective reconciliation as well as an identity of what makes for a common identity, common South Africanness that we can all be proud of, and that's what we cultivate. No, thank you very much for those initial insights, Bishop. And I think, you know, the question of South Africa having been built the way it was and how we then treat each other today is a very important one. And I think also, uh, Professor Charlene, the Bishop mentions a lot of these intersectional variables that obviously have to work together. The question of the economy, access to justice and access to resources. We now know in South Africa that far too many of those variables are individually just not delivering the right outcomes. So is the idea of social cohesion if it's going to be premised on all of these working together, is it in itself elusive when we can't even fix the individual variables and say this is how they contribute to the bigger social cohesion conversation? So that's a really good point, Kaya, because um, I think one of the key um, statistics in our country is what is the level of inequality in our country? And I want to illustrate it with um, an international figure the Human Development Index measures um, inequality and um, um, access to uh, education, uh, health, uh, gender equality. And for South Africa, that figure is 116th. We are 116th on the list of 210 countries. But for black South Africans, um, that figure is the same because of the population. But for white South Africans, we are about 15th on that list. So we have the same health outcomes, um, economic outcomes, educational outcomes as, for example, Sweden and the UK, and we are better than France and Belgium. Now, that statistic, I think, helps us to see the level of inequality that is just race based. Um, because of the fact that I was born as a white South African, I have so much better access to opportunities, to education, to health 
even though we've got in place um, affirmative action and equity policies, even though that we've been trying for the last 26 years um, to, uh, to, to level the playing field. Um, and whoever you speak to, as soon as that inequality issue is, I don't want to say fixed, because I think that's um, a little bit naive to think we're going to fix it even in the next 25 years, but lessened, diminished. As soon as we have less of a divide between black and white South Africans, I think that's really going to help build um, the, the social cohesion in, in our country. Um, what is the vision that we want for this country? We want um, a South Africa, like the bishop says, where we share common values, where we talk about what it is to be a South African. And for me, one of the important pieces is this issue of solidarity. Now, in the last 100 days, 150 days or so, we've seen signs of solidarity between poor communities and wealthy communities. We've seen signs of solidarity from the state, um, from business, um, all trying to actually make sure that even though, and you've, you've seen the, 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 the pictures all over social media, we're all in the same storm, but we are in different boats. And some of us are in beautiful boats that are surviving the, the crashing waves. Others are just being swamped and deluged over and over again. And so this issue of solidarity between South Africans is really important. Um, in my work with the Human Science Research Council, we do every year an annual um, attitude survey. And one of the things that we've been asking for the last 25 years is, do we like each other and do we trust each other? Um, and so that's the thing that's, that I've, I've been finding really interesting is that except for 2010 during the football, the Soccer World Cup, um, we've been saying that we don't really trust each other. So 70% of South Africans across colour lines, black, white, coloured, Indian, will say that we don't trust each other. And about 55%, half, say we will never trust each other. And I'm really interested to know how we can change that um, statistic. Um, and part of the issue that I know for sure in my work, um, both in the community and in academia, is that we don't know each other. Um, so we're heading for September. September's coming in, um, you know, two months time. And we start talking about Heritage Day and people start talking about Bri Day. And then we start thinking about, oh, what do we have in common? Well, we all love to be outdoors and we all love to eat you know, to Bri and, and whatnot. But the truth is that we have so little in common with each other because we, we oh, I think we've got a lot in common, but we don't really know each other. Um, and I think that that's something that is hurting our country as we go forward. I want to just mention one last statistic um, in response to those issues. And that is, I also chair an organization called the Restitution Foundation. We've been trying for the last 20 years or so to help people have conversations about how the past has affected our present. Well, again, we've um, put out a survey through the Human Sciences Research Council, and we asked the question, um, would you like to talk about the past? Um, and one in five white people say they would like to talk about the past. Um, whereas one in two black South Africans want to talk about the past. Now, that's a huge difference. The interesting part is, I mean, it's obvious that so few um, white South Africans want to talk about the past, perhaps because of issues of guilt, perhaps because of issues of, you know, who's going to come and ask for me to pay for the privileges of the past. But I'm also interested to know why one in two black South Africans want to talk about the past and why not many more?
And I suppose part of what we, we have in our country is we have an innate desire for peace. We don't really want to cause problems. Yes, there are young people on our campuses and, you know, thank God for them that are, are saying enough is enough. The inequality is wrong. The racism is wrong. The gender violence is wrong. Um, but those are a small segment of our society. The majority of our, our country want to live in peace with each other. Um, yes, they're saying that we don't really know or trust each other. Um, but I think it's interesting to notice that only half of black South Africans even want to talk about the past. Um, and then, of course, there's the other question that we ask, which is, um, should we have a tax, um, a wealth tax um, that... Um, many people have been speaking about, well, one in 10 white South Africans saying that a tax would be helpful, but also only one out of two black South Africans say a tax would be um, welcome. So I'm really interested in those trends around social cohesion. The fact that we've got such huge disparities um, still 26 years later um, across um, racial lines, but also people's attitudes towards what do we want to do about it? Are we happy to accept the fact that we don't know and don't trust each other? Or are we actually going to start moving forward to say, let's build some form of solidarity, um, both as been evidenced in how communities have been getting together across the COVID lockdown. Um, the community action networks are a good example of that. Um, but how do we develop a sense of solidarity and, and belonging um, to a, a country that we love, where we don't want race to dominate and we want people to have um, equal access to opportunities and where we, we want to celebrate some differences, but really we want to celebrate being South African together. Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Swartz. And I think, you know, when you say that we don't know each other as South Africans, that really hit me hard. Dr. Marlene Mahokoto, I mean, you work at the Ecumenical Foundation of South Africa, and one of the uh, big missions of the EFSA is to actually just promote dialogue and consensus between different sectors and role players in South Africa on the challenges that do face our diverse society. I mean, the data that we've just heard relating to the Human Development Index, for example, in relation to South Africa is sobering. What then becomes the role of institutions like EFSA to say, look, we've heard that the Human Sciences Research Council is telling us this is the state of social cohesion, which essentially isn't a state at all. It doesn't exist in South Africa. Let's move forward and start making it happen. What does the EFSA do? Thank you so much, Kaya. Um, I want to latch on um, exactly at the last point in terms of um, South Africans, we do not know each other. And I think... Um, what in, in for the EFSA Institute, it is important for us to move out of our comfort zones. And we will not be able to overcome many of the challenges that we as South Africans are facing if really we do not know each other. You know, if I, if, when I look at the young people, uh, one of the reasons why it is most probably so easy for them um, to communicate and to talk about things that that um, you know that lays heavily on their hearts is most probably because they know each other. Our children play with each other um, over the racial lines and and they build relationships. And I think um, if I if I may, I would like to give you an example of exactly what it is that um, the EFSA Institute is doing. Um, with regards to building these relationships, building these networks. We currently have a project in the Northern Cape called Tansabane Cares. 
where we basically um, went into the into the community and talked to the church leaders, the faith leaders, to find out what their concerns are. So we have been working with them um, for more than a year now. And from the community, they then indicated to us what it is that they find as a priority in their communities. And we had things like poverty, drug abuse, uh, children that are really not knowing which way they are going in their life. Many things that they that they basically told us about. And what we then did was, you know, this we are in, in, in a situation in South Africa and COVID-19 basically just shone the spotlight on all the, the, the issues that, that all the unresolved issues that we have, all the problems that we face as a society. And, and it, it is really true that no one person, no one agency um, can really uh, uh, solve all the challenges that we are facing. So what we did was that we basically spoke to quite a number of stakeholders in that community and got them on board. We got the mine on board, We've, we got social development on board, Department of Health, we got the municipality on board, we got the police services on board, and the police uh, community forum, we got the, the principals on board at the schools, and we are in the process of nurturing these relationships. And because of COVID-19, and because we had the problem of our vulnerable people um, not having adequate food, we had to think on our feet and we basically had to change the program and first started off with emergency food parcels. But that was not the end result. What we were able to do with that was to go into the community, go into the vulnerable families in their setup and basically get the necessary information that we now can share with the different stakeholders. And so that we do not just end up just giving out food parcels, uh, which is very necessary during these difficult times, but that we also are in the position afterwards and even during the time of, of the pandemic uh, and during lockdown, that we are in the position to actually walk with these families and being able to put them in connection with different stakeholders so that we can basically... Uh, just better the try and better the lives of these uh, families. And now, from the from the food parcels, we are now busy with hydrophonic uh, uh, food tunnels, where we want to try and make these communities independent, so that they can basically supply their own food. So, I suppose what I'm saying is that if we want to address these issues that South Africa is facing, we will have to work together. All stakeholders will have. So, so that, that is basically on a practical level, Kaya, what, what we are trying to do uh, during these times. And, and as you also know, um, during the pandemic, people are in a state of increased bereavement. They, they experience trauma. We, we, we've seen... Uh, on the news where they have made us aware of uh, the violence against women and children that is just incrementing. And and we really, uh, during these times, have to find alternative ways where we can, you know, uh, take the hands of our people. 
and our churches are doing the work. They are at the forefront of doing these things. And it is just sometimes that they, I normally say they do it undercover. People don't really know what they are doing, but you get snippets of it, um, you know, over the news where you hear that this mother was feeding the whole community or feeding the whole street or this church reached out and they did, they did all the good work. So, as a, you know, I, I am really, I really feel strong that we have to move out of our comfort zones yeah. and, and, and address a lot of these issues. No, thank you very much, Dr. Mahokoto. I think those are very, very important points. And I think also the ability for us to tap into what's happening out there to sort of create that awareness that things can be done, but perhaps it is the skill and the visibility that we need to work on. Afropolitans, we are still talking beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. This is one of our podcasts that is done in partnership between Kaya FM and the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Today's focus is on the question of social cohesion and I think a lot of us probably want to figure out exactly whether this is even possible in a country with so many fractured starting points. Professor Swartz, one of the things that people keep saying about this particular pandemic in particular is that it is actually an opportunity for the Great Reset. So a lot of the things that would have taken years for people to come around to understanding and then trying to figure out how to work around them and then how to solve them. Now suddenly this has been accelerated and we're seeing perhaps the awareness of just the plight of so many people that were living on the fringes of poverty in South Africa. Now everybody's aware of it. No one can say, I didn't know, I didn't hear about it. So this being the great reset button, I was hoping that we'd be able to say, well, actually, as elusive as the concept of social cohesion has been up to now, we now have a much more universal understanding of what needs to be done and this is how it's going to be done. Is that what's happening? Well, it's certainly what people are talking about, um, but I've yet to see some really good examples of policies um, that are going to bring it about. So um, a few examples is, um, you know, a lot of people are working from home, but you've also got to ask yourself who is able to work from home. Um, it's people who've got access to fiber and high-speed internet connections, who've got um, kind of uh, white-collar jobs where that is um, a, a reality, um, and where they have uh, laptops and equipment, and the same issue around education. So in one sense, we can see that the possibilities for people working from home are incredible, and it will solve some of our problems around transport. So one of the incredible social divides in our country is that people who are living in Kailicha, 40 kilometers from the city, spend so much of their salary just commuting to work. And if there's a bus strike or a train line that's been uh, sabotaged, then they don't get to work or they get to work late. So all of our issues around <clears throat> uh, commuting to work, for example, I'm not he hearing people talk about how we can uh, take industries from a central hub and localize them, because that's really one of the things that we need to be doing. We need to be working in our communities so that you know, transport and income generation and livelihoods become a possibility. I think that's really important. The other issue that's arisen um, certainly in the COVID crisis has been the issue of um, homeless South Africans. And there's been movements around um, through the solidarity networks of asking churches to start using their premises for more than just what happens on a Sunday. So having churches closed, for example, has been a, a, a huge wake-up call for how we've got all the space in our urban areas, in our townships, um, all over the country of unused space. 
the problem, of course, is that very few faith communities have responded um, to this issue of housing homeless people or starting to think very systemically about how um, people can be helped to be reabsorbed into society, um, etc. Um, Marlene mentioned something about churches being a, a really good hub in terms of feeding and helping and, and whatnot. But it's also one of the most divided spaces in our country. If, if you look around at the people with whom you go to um, um, uh, church with or mosque with, um, they look like you. And I think that's going to be a, a really important reset button. We've got to try and get that right, because if it's always, you know, kind of charity from one group to another group, that doesn't help us with our social cohesion. That's help, that helps people with the immediate issue of staving off hunger, um, but it really doesn't help us to, to close that gap, to narrow that, that divide. And I think that's really important. The other issue is um, if you think about where people work, if you work in a government uh, department or in the municipality, you basically um, are surrounded by uh, people who are like you if you're a black South African. If you're working in private business, you often have people who are in senior positions who are still white. And so we are so incredibly divided that w who's going to find that reset button so that we see each other across these divides? And I'm, I'm just talking now from a racial point of view because I think that race is one of the most important pieces around social cohesion. Um, xenophobia, we haven't really spoken about xenophobia under lockdown and COVID, and we must because one of the problems that we faced with um, with issues of uh, foreign nationals being here and who are here without uh, documentation is that those people have really borne the brunt of, of the lockdown because they haven't had access to um, um, social grants, they haven't had access to the emergency grants. And so that's going to that's a problem we've got to rethink. How are we dealing with the fact that we are a country that hosts many people from the rest of the continent and who whose presence in our country helps drive our economy um, in all sorts of ways? Um, the other issue around gender based violence. The, the, the pandemic has thrown such an incredible light onto the fact that um, when people are at home together, gender based violence increases. Um, but as soon as the alcohol band is lifted or stopped, that that also increases or influences gender-based violence. So we, in a sense, we've been living in a laboratory of what happens when people have work, when people are hungry, when people are home, when people have um, access to alcohol in terms of so many of these um, uh, fracture points in social cohesion, race, um, uh, gender, xenophobia, uh, children. Um, you know, what's happening to our children? Are they being uh, nurtured and loved and cared for or are they being um, abused, whether it's um, physically or, or sexually, with people being home, with people being under stress? And so those um, issues are something that we've really got to pay close attention to. Um, we haven't even spoken about older people, people living with disabilities, but the, the, the pandemic has, has affected them too. So. Uh, where people are in um, retirement villages or old age homes, we know that that's been a problem with, with the virus, um, but we've got to find new models. How do we live in intergenerational ways? 
So with the schools being closed, for example, um, that's also one way of protecting older people in households. So we've got so much to think about and we keep talking the rhetoric of, oh, this is going to be a great reset button. And all I think that the, the virus is doing is telling us where our fault lines are. Um, but I'm not yet seeing enough people come up with innovative solutions. Thank you very much, Professor Shalin. And I think, you know, the question of solutions is one that we really need to start gravitating towards. Bishop Mpumlwana, I mean, historically, churches have been a place of refuge for a lot of South Africans that were either fighting the state or even in instances of gender-based violence, really just trying to find a way of escaping very hostile environments. In this particular opportunity, where we've now also been forced to revisit the very idea that far too many people have no places of permanent refuge, whether it's people that live in unsecure settlements or people who are even homeless. The churches have historically played a critical role in just being the places of refuge for a lot of people. And I'm thinking here now the coronavirus has forced us to revisit the fact that far too many people actually don't know where they'll be sleeping today. Far too many people don't know what they'll be eating tomorrow. And for me, the role of the church has suddenly taken prominent yet again. But again, we need to then ask ourselves the question, what is it that can be done in the short term? How innovative can we be? In perhaps, as Professor Swat said earlier on, and I think uh, Dr. Malin also mentioned it, churches saying, well, actually, we can't have this idle resource sitting for six days when people need it, only for us to only use it on a Sunday. Are those types of conversations happening within the South African Council of Churches? Actually, the, 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 I should just say that the national church leaders of the SACC meet every week on Tuesday in what is called a COVID watch meeting. And and the SACC developed a strategy, not a strategy plan, but a pastoral plan uh, you know, that we developed during March, soon after the COVID strike. It, it, it came upon us. And that has got four parts. Um, and one is uh, creating structures um, and a communication system that is able to strengthen church communities on the ground. And for that, we've got a website and a WhatsApp platform. Uh, the two websites is churchinaction.org.za, churchinaction.org.za. So you can look it up and see what it offers. Secondly, we did what we call a crisis relief. And a lot of churches have been providing food parcels in different parts of the country. We encourage that. But we took the position that government should not do the same. Uh, the Department of Social Development was making grants to the provinces and the provinces buy food. We said, no, we don't think this is going to work. First of all, those food parcels are likely to reprioritize the city, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Durban, Port Elizabeth, and they will take forever to get to Pafada in the in the Northern Cape. Um, and and, and of the Taungo or Bohom or Boshbach Ridge, Kogolwing, those places will not get access. And that it is better to have food as kind of vouchers, cash vouchers of, of food food vouchers, because then that can reach everybody at the same time, because it's electronic. But it also means you cut out the middle person, you cut out also the whole logistical arrangement for food parcels to be delivered by government. Um, you cut out the power of the local uh, you know, counselor who, who, who stands up and says, I'm going to give you stuff. So that we spent a lot of our time advocating for that, and successfully because government actually agreed that that was the better way. And I remember the Minister of Social Development actually saying that this brings dignity 
And, but I also bring agency to the person. They know what they want to buy, not waiting on a full parcel that does not have what you need. So that's, that's the work we're going to continue to do, that working in solidarity fund and providing some of those vouchers ourselves, particularly for people that will not have the access to the government services because they don't have IDs for whatever reason. Some of them might be foreign nationals. So those kinds of people then we have to deal with as SACC ourselves through, through, through the support of the Solidarity Fund. Thirdly, we did what we call the Pastoral Care Ministry. Now, the Pastoral Care includes uh, the fact that in our community, we have got families of, of, of frontline workers, families of doctors, of nurses, of clerks, of cleaners of hospitals, of police. These people, every day they leave home, the family lives with anxiety. Are they going to come back with the disease in our home? Now, I remember a bishop, a bishop who was going to bury a priest who had died from COVID. He's, he calls me in the morning and says, you know, I'm in trouble. I've never expected this. My children are standing at the door and say, Dada, you can't go to this. You're going to come back with the disease. <laughs> you know, he says, it's unthinkable. But as a bishop, I would not, I'll be stopped by my family from burying a priest. And, and so... Now, if that's the case with this one bishop on this one day, what is the case for a family of every worker who has to go to the front line every morning and come back every evening? What kind of ministry do they need? Are we taking time to look at that as, as, as communities, as congregations? So that's what this possible case is about, but also to look at people that fall between the cracks. And the, third, the fourth part is actually looking at, all right, now, what is the post-COVID? How are we rebuilding communities? How are we ensuring that uh, the people that have been what we call the excluded majority uh, before COVID and now have a prospect of a non-exclusion into the future? And here, talk of an inclusive economy growth. And, you know, uh, we have identified in terms of that at the SACC that when we talk about the excluded majority, we're talking about largely the colors and, and Africans. And those two population groups, they are the most excluded. Uh, between them, they make up 99%. This is what SETSA tells us. 99% of South Africa's poverty is between these two groups. And you know what? Between the two of them, they make up 90% of the voting population. So it is actually a huge uh, you know, population. And that includes people in the Bandistans, in the old Bandistans. Nothing has changed for many of them. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, people in the Dorothys, in small Dorothys, in the Karoo, somewhere there, uh, who, that, where the life has not changed, things are still as difficult as they ever were, in fact, more so, because they no longer have the train that used to stop at DR and so on. Uh, and, and, and so all these things, these communities, we need to have it targeted. We, people say that, well, there's lots of, there's lots of bars and gangsters and colored communities in, in in Manenberg, Bontivo, uh, or even Eldos, or look, what is the targeted plan to make sure that these communities come to, that's what I meant by reconciliation at the beginning, to reconcile with yourself as a human being, to reconcile with yourself as, as a citizen, or a proud citizen of a country that recognizes you and, I, and makes you feel that you belong. So it's, it's economical, it's social, it's education, all those things we need, we need a post-COVID Marshall Plan.
Yeah. Bishop, that is a very important concept, the idea of a Marshall Plan, because we know that historically, after there's been a great interruption, whether it's a war or a pandemic of this nature, the solidarity or the shared compromise um, that various uh, parts of society signed up to was then the driver behind, you know, the reforms or even just uh, the marshalling of the new plan. So I think that's a very important um, a point that you do put across. Afropolitans, we are still talking about social cohesion and really the question of what the world would look like and what South Africa would look like after the corona pandemic. And I think it's quite key for us to be talking about issues of social cohesion because I think if you listen to our previous podcast, we were talking about some of the variables that are now sort of converging together to say, well, we spoke about xenophobia a couple of weeks ago. That in itself is probably a byproduct of the lack of social cohesion that we're seeing here. So I think it's quite an important conversation that we are having with our guests. And it is, of course, in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Now, Dr. Malin Mahogoto, I'm going to throw you under the bus here because I think what we've been hearing over the past 40 minutes or so is really the fact that we need to move forward and get things done. But I think a lot of people will say that perhaps the one driver that has the capacity and the capability to lead us all is the government itself, if for no other reason than the fact that it actually has access to resources that are much more than the resources that my NGO or your NGO could have access to. But of course, the big problem we have in South Africa is that once people start saying, let's talk government, people hear mistrust, corruption, mismanagement. If the central player in this partnership towards social cohesion is a player that is so mistrusted by every other partner, is it even possible for us to start moving forward? Thank you, Kaya. Kaya, you know, I think, um, yes, uh, South Africans, uh, or, or let me say most South Africans do not trust government because of its uh, uh, track record. However, government um, does not need to be at the forefront of everything in terms of, and I'm speaking specifically with regards to what's happening now during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, there are, there are stakeholders in this country who has got proven networks of capacity, who have been doing relief and development work for many, many years with good track records. And I think government could perhaps come into this equation as a facilitator and a coordinator and basically support the initiatives of these stakeholders, these faith communities, NGOs, civil society and business. And, and they have the capacity to run quite a number of programs successfully. And I think if you, if you perhaps uh, move towards that, then you have quite a number of, of organizations that can also play an oversight role. You will be able to keep tabs on everybody that's involved. And through that, um, I would hope that we will also be able to build the relationship relationships that we need in order to move forward as a country. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Malin, I mean, 
anecdotally, the role of government as the facilitator and coordinator of all these various social partners is a key one. But I think our recent history, even during this coronavirus pandemic, is that we've seen government, for example, sidelining a lot of NGOs that were saying, well, actually, we've been distributing food parcels long before this pandemic hit. And yet now in the community Mm -hmm. that we've been servicing, suddenly government says, here's the service provider. And we all know the Mm -hmm. anxieties that come with government saying, here's a new service provider being imposed on a community because mm. again our history shows us that six months later a year later two years later it then turns out that oh by the way the reason they were imposed in a community is because here's this particular politician who had this entanglement yes. with that particular uh, NGO for example again the anxieties of South Africans are valid we have to acknowledge that the government hasn't really you know played the type of leadership role that we expected it to do do they still have an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to turn it around even at this stage of this lockdown Kaya, that's a difficult question, but an important one. I, We are at the moment in our country and in the world in a state of, if I can put it, hopelessness. People really are eagerly looking forward to some sense of normality um, after everything that has happened to us um, these past few months. And I would, I would think that if government really, you know, wants to um, turn this around, then as so many people have said, they need to take the people into their confidence. They need to be honest with the people. And I think from there, I could even say what Bishop Malusi has said before, that there needs to be a reconciliation between government and the people. And then perhaps we can move forward. And if I can just come back uh, with regards to what you said about uh, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, the the changes that took place uh, when we, when people were, I've been feeding so many during the past years, and now suddenly there's a specific uh, uh, service provider that's doing it. Um, You know, we need to have formalized agreements also with government that can, that can put what we need and what we want on the table um, so that the faith networks and also our civil society, that they really can take government to task and say that, you know, if we if we have these national agreements, then we can really roll out so many things. But I at this at this point in time, I am I want to say cautiously optimistic. Um and I do hope that government will be able to 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 put a, a positive spin on things as it is at present. Hmm. We hope so. Professor Charlene, I mean, the Human Sciences Research Council is obviously an important institution in this conversation because, you know, when we say that government does this and government doesn't do that, a lot of people will say, well, what exactly is government? And in this context, you will think that actually government has all these agencies, the HSRC being one of them, that are then probably better positioned to actually roll out the type of issues we're talking about here, the type of initiatives that will be getting us closer to really this elusive pursuit of social cohesion. But I think what we see 
thing in South Africa is that whenever something has gone wrong at the government level, we're seeing the faces of um, various government leaders, uh, politicians and bureaucrats, and we're not seeing institutions themselves. So the question would be, well, now that we know that we're facing a particular pandemic, the government does actually have particular institutions that are specifically designed and earmarked to deal with these types of issues. Shouldn't we be seeing them taking the leadership instead of us saying abstractly, government must do this? I need to be able to say, I'm talking to the HSRC. I'm talking to the Human Rights Commission. So when something happens that the Defense Force, for example, decides to engage in activities that lead to a loss of life, I need to be able to point to a particular institution, a particular individual, because my fear is that whenever we say government, we're now diluting the accountability question because what is government? Who is government? But we know individuals. We know the HSRC. We know the Human Rights Council, for example. We need to be able to pinpoint the accountability and zero it down so that people can see that something's being done because being abstract, unfortunately, isn't getting us anywhere. You're completely right, Kaya. And one of the things that I wanted to distinguish is we've got a system of political patronage and we've got some incredibly hardworking government civil servants. And often what we do is we, we roll those two into the same um, uh, you know, boat to mix a metaphor. Um, and so one of the things that I think South Africans are really good at is they're really good at protesting when they see things are wrong. And so in the last few days, there's been uh, protests in Cape Town around housing. Um, there's protests um, around many things in our country. And in one sense, if we were talking about uh, civil, civil participation instead of social cohesion, we'd be doing really well because people don't take um, things that are wrong sitting down. They stand up, they, they make a fuss, they post on social media, they take to the streets. Um, there's, there's a lot of civic engagement. And I think that's a really incredible thing. Um, I think you're completely right is that there needs to be a, a level of education of people about where they can take particular particular grievances um, and who they should be asking and holding to account. Um, so this issue of political patronage, we've got to keep talking about it. it. It broke my heart yesterday to read a newspaper heading that says, so when we get this IMF money, um, what's it going to do? You know, whose pockets is it going to line? And, and that breaks my heart because that seems to be our initial response to, oh, look, we've got money, um, you know, and now what are we going to do with it? <clears throat> So I think people must be held to account. Um, during the World Cup in 2010, um, I live in Cape Town, the streets became an incredible place of, um, of friendship and happiness where you could walk around. And it was partly because um, crime was policed in a way that we've never seen before in South Africa and our new democracy. There were short queues. If you, you know, if somebody did something wrong, if there was a, you know, a, a fight or somebody um, pickpocketed somebody else, um, justice was done immediately and justice was seen to be done immediately. There were special courts set up and that kind of thing. We still got problems in our justice system at the moment where we really should be cleaning up um, issues of corruption, issues of uh, poor policing, um, issues of um, corruption around food parcels and procurement. Um, and I don't know why we don't do that. And here's a curveball that I want to throw in. Um, it's around um, how much uh, technology we've adopted um, as a country. Um, when we think about tenders, you know, you've still got to go and 
drop-off, hand-delivered tenders. You can set up fronting companies in various ways. Um, so many of the issues of corruption in our country are because people have, it's so easy to actually fool government or to charge them three or four times the price of um, of, of a good or uh, goods or, or services. And one of the things that I'm thinking is that our, our civil servants, I know you call them bureaucrats, our civil servants really need to actually start adopting some of the technologies of this fourth industrial revolution. Um, putting tenders out into, um, into a very secure environment where credentials are in the blockchain, where we've got all sorts of new ways of uh, regulating um, how money is spent, how money is dispersed is going to go a far way towards changing um, the, the climate of corruption um, and the climate of impunity in our country. And I think that's a really important piece is that we've really got to get with the times um, around many of these um, issues. Um, you know, SASA grants and how those are dispersed. It broke my heart to see those queues of people, in, including older people, standing in these in, like never-ending queues in order to get their, their social grants. Um, and this whole issue of a basic income grant that's been spoken about, uh, that government's saying that they're looking into. Well, you know, civil society has raised that since uh, the advent of democracy in 1998, I think there were some people who were starting a campaign around that. And if we use technology well, we can actually give people a basic income grant that will stave off hunger and starvation um, and give them a minimum um, platform on which to build their life. Um, the bishop started out by saying people need agency and the whole issue of food vouchers is a really incredible innovation that's come out of the pandemic. And we really must um, speak about that and how that can be spread um, more widely. The, the research shows very clearly um, that people are in a far better way when they are given cash transfers or food vouchers than if they're given packages of you know sugar and, and maize meal and rice and, and what not because they know best how to make sure that they are taking care of their family. Um, maybe they need to spend some money on airtime because airtime is important to get a job, those kinds of things. Um, but I think young people as well. I, my speciality in my research is young people. Um, and we are lagging behind the rest of the continent who have youth service programs um, that cover huge numbers of young people. Yeah, we've got small numbers of youth programs in various departments. Um, but to give young people a year of work opportunities when they finish um, school, or even if they, they um, drop out of school, um, to give them something to do. I think young people get into all sorts of nefarious activities because they've got nothing else to do. Um, but under COVID, under lockdown, I'm not sure if you've seen um, reports of how um, uh, informal settlements, township communities have transformed great big swathes of land that was just uh, kind of dumps of rubbish and old car tires, and they've turned them into gardens, community gardens. They started to grow food in them. We really could have a program where we ask young people to take a year and just improve their own community. Those are some of the innovations that we need. So this basic income grant, a youth service program, um, kind of uh, quick responsive courts 
um, one of the things that the justice system have, have been trialing is to have courts online through a Zoom meeting. You know, we've all been spending our lives in Zoom meetings. Well, the courts are now starting to do that, but it's got to become more efficient, more effective, and it's got to become the norm so people don't, you know, wait for eight months to be brought to trial, but that justice is uh, quick, efficient, um, and fair. Um, I think that's really important. And then this whole issue of giving some of our civil servants the the accolades they deserve. Because I work for the HSRC, I'm often in touch with um, the director generals of various departments um, and directors of departments, and people are working incredibly hard. They are often thwarted by the political interference, as it were, because we've got these networks of political patronage. And I think that's something that we've got to stop, and that's something that we've got to um, really just call every time we see it as, as people... Um, um, in civil society and I think that's important because we, we have a lot of agency um, I love the fact that you cannot make a racial slur in South Africa without being taken to the Equality Court that's a huge change from even five or six years ago and it's it's going to really help with people coming to terms with the fact that um, racism is not just anti-constitutional it's a crime and it's going to hit you in the pocket or it's going to result in a prison sentence so I think we've we're starting to make huge inroads using our um, Section 9 institutions, using the Human Rights Institution, um, all of those things. And the NPA need to be strengthened too to really um, be able to prosecute, um, especially the things that we're hearing that come, coming out of the Zonda Commission. Thank you, Charlene. Bishop Pumlana, I mean, you're probably going to have the last word on this. The issue of the deficit, the trust deficit that exists between society and the state means that, you know, where in a normal society, the government will be working hand in hand with other social partners to get us moving here. A lot of people see the government itself as an impediment. So, of course, us trying to find some, you know, consensus around social cohesion is not going to be easy when a big player is seen as an impediment rather than as an enabler. In short, how do we get around that particular dilemma? Building different approaches to democracy, including direct election, I think, so that people can know who their representatives are and they can trust. Secondly, uh, the bulk of our population is young. Charlene just talked about uh, how we led behind in terms of uh, youth investment in South Africa. Uh, can you imagine what the impact might be if we said, Every young person under the age of 21 who's not at school, who's not at work, must be given a training program, must be put into a training program for a skill that they can use that is marketable. And that those young people stop loitering, they get into something that really can bring them. A lot of them can be innovative. And you know, so we can do that. I mean, the president has got this YES program, which takes about 20 a thousand, uh, maybe 50,000 at most, you know, that does not even have a little dent. We have got a population that is young, and we think that if you were to address that population effectively with skills and opportunities for the future, at the same time as they are having direct elections for some of the key political positions, including the legislature, and, I might add, the presidency, you would probably find a different level of trust between society and government, but also you'll have young people that are much more uplifted and looking forward to greater expression of themselves in the economy. I think that those two things would work. 
Thank you very much, Bishop Malus Mpumlwana and Afropolitans. I mean, the concept of social cohesion is a very, very delicate one. But I think what I'm taking from this conversation is that it's all about the interdependence of society. And of course, it means all social partners and social players have a key role to play. This particular pandemic has become the great research that forced us to actually confront the reality of who we are rather than who we thought we were. And I'm hoping that this becomes a springboard of South Africa forming a new social compact around who we are, who we want to be, and how we are going to get there. Thank you very much to my three guests, Bishop Malus Mpumluana from the SA Council of Churches, Professor Shalene Schwartz from the Human Sciences Research Council, and Dr. Malin Mahokoto, who's a senior project manager at EFSA, who've been contributing to really this very, very delicate conversation that is done in partnership between KFM and the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. And on that note, thank you very much for joining us. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.